This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 5th, 2007. I'm Caleb Brown. Today marks 74 years since the official end of Prohibition. But Prohibition didn't vanish overnight. So says Brandon Arnold, the Cato Institute's Director of Government Affairs. It took a dark chapter of American history to learn the lessons of Prohibition. The push for Prohibition predated uh, the actual success in passing the 18th Amendment by about 100 years. There was a, a long struggle by, um, by temperance advocates to um, at first enact uh, laws at mostly the state and local level to, uh, to push dry policies. It all started, though, with, uh, with the Quakers, mostly a doctor by the name of Benjamin Rush, who observed that drinking was leading to a less productive society. So even though it was Quakers, a religious group, it was grounded more in, in capitalist and productivity motives than it was in pure religious, moral uh, type uh, things that we associate with, with uh, religious advocates for, for less drinking and, and, uh, and temperance generally. Now, they were very effective, the anti-drinking forces, in pushing their policies at the state and local level, as I mentioned. Um, and eventually, they were able to get the country to the point where, um, before Prohibition, about two-thirds of Americans lived in counties or states that were dry. So the, the eventual jump from there to, to Prohibition was not quite the extensive leap that some might think it was. Um, some of their, their tactics that they used were also tremendously effective and very innovative. The Anti-Saloon League... Uh, basically was the first major single-issue group. We think of tons of single-issue groups today. But they were the first group that didn't care what party you were in. They didn't care about what policies you supported, except for your position on drinking. If you were a dry candidate, they would support you. If you were wet or if you waffled, they would not support you. And there wasn't really a counter-strategy for that at the time. The the beer and the, the spirits industry... Uh, there was some infighting there. They weren't tremendously well organized from a political point of view, and they were really blindsided by this innovative, very effective strategy of the dries. The 21st Amendment is an amendment to the Constitution that is a first in that it repealed a previous amendment to the Constitution instituting prohibition. How did the political winds change and what brought about the end of prohibition? The first thing that Americans associate with prohibition uh, is the high crime, the, the corruption, the bootlegging, the speakeasies. Those were, were basically unsavory elements of society that, that for the most part didn't exist pre-prohibition. So there was a lot of political discontent with what prohibition actually delivered. Of course, it promised to eradicate crime because people correlated alcohol with crime. It, they suggested that prisons would be empty because we wouldn't have all these criminals anymore. They suggested that society would be tremendously more productive. Uh, workers would, would be able to, to produce more. Uh, and that simply didn't materialize. And the public realized that pretty quickly. It didn't take more than a couple years before it was evident that prohibition was going to be a failure. And the public uh, sentiment was a huge portion of overturning prohibition. There were some other elements that are interesting as well. Alcohol taxes provided a tremendous amount of revenues to, uh, to the U.S. Treasury. Um, about actually one-third, pre-prohibition, about one-third of tax revenues came from alcohol trade. Now, of course, in 1913, we passed an income tax, a 
federal income tax for the first time. This revenue was able to supplant the revenue generated by the alcohol industry. So it, there wasn't a major reduction in revenues for legislators. So that's one of the reasons that they were able to pass prohibition. Now, the Depression in the 1930s, of course, suppressed the amount of revenues that were coming in through income taxes. And Congress was looking for ways to replace that. And of course, the untaxed illegal trade that was occurring in alcohol was a likely target. So by making that the alcohol legal again, they had another source of revenue generation. It's been 74 years since the end of Prohibition, but there are remnants of it. In some ways, there's an attitude about drinking that has actually sort of changed to a more temperance-style attitude, and there are regulations that are direct descendants of the end of Prohibition. Immediately after Prohibition, most states adopted what they call a three-tier distribution system. Um, the, the system works like this. Alcohol producers, be they brewers or winemakers, they make the product. They then are forced to sell to wholesalers or distributors who then are forced to sell to retailers who can then sell to consumers. So there's a lot of middlemen involved in the process. The reason that they wanted to do this was to ensure that states could collect taxes uh, and that they could squeeze organized crime out of the picture because it made the process very transparent. They knew that, that they went to wholesalers. They could collect tax revenue from them. They could monitor them. So it may have made a degree of sense at the time. Of course, we don't have the same issues with organized crime today. We don't have as much difficulty collecting tax revenue. The IRS it tends to be pretty good at that, as well as the state revenue agencies, uh, thanks in, in large part to technological advances. Yet these same laws live on. They've lived on for 74 years. They still exist in virtually every state. We still have a forced middleman in alcohol transactions. And this is a subject of a lot of litigation. It's a subject of a lot of, um, a lot of debates in Congress and in state, legislators, state legislatures. Uh, but they have, um, I guess the alcohol industry and consumers have kind of uh, uh, been outflanked by the distributors. The distributors are mandated by law in many states to be part of the process. They've made a lot of money, and they have used their lobbying resources very effectively to keep these laws on the books and to, to stay profitable. So that's on, on the, the law side. As, as you mentioned, there are a number of laws direct, directly descended from the end of Prohibition and the 21st Amendment. Uh, the attitudes, I think people have a changing attitude toward Prohibition now. I think a lot of that comes from a general uh, negative view of alcohol, especially as it relates to, to minors. Underage drinking is, has been a problem for a long time, and there's a lot of groups that are uh, very adamant about uh, limiting underage drinking. Um, and we see an increasing role in organizations that may have once been dedicated to, to noble, uh, noble causes like eliminating underage drinking, reducing drunk driving, that have now become a little bit more zealous that now um, are pushing laws that, that really don't have an effect on underage drinking or, or drunk driving, but uh, they're, they're willing to just throw any law at this problem. And as, as a result, we've restricted freedoms. We've, we've put limits that really don't have an effect on uh, drunk driving. We've, we've lowered the, the, the alcohol, uh, the, the acceptable, 
acceptable blood alcohol content to a point where um, it's it's questionable whether whether people are actually impaired at that level. We've limited um, alcohol advertisements to a great extent. We've passed a lot of laws, at the, mostly at the state, but also at the federal level, to crack down on uh, on problems. That, uh, the laws, uh, quite frankly, have questionable efficacy. But I think a lot of that stems from Americans now that we're, we're 74 years removed from the failures of prohibition. Some people look back and even think that Oh, there was a slight reduction in alcohol consumption. Maybe this, maybe this experiment did actually work, and there's kind of a revisionist history developing as a result. Brandon Ardle is the Cato Institute's Director of Government Affairs. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. Please be sure to check out Cato Weekly Video for segments of longer events available from the Cato Institute. It's available for download at cato.org.